0: Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson.
1: Copernicus said we're not the center of the universe, but we still mostly behave as if we are. We really spend most of our time trying to deny Copernicus. By putting life at the center, it fundamentally changes the perspective.
0: That's Bruce Mao, a globally renowned problem solver who created a methodology for whole system transformation. As co founder and CEO of Massive Change Network, a holistic design practice based in Chicago. During three decades of design innovation, he's collaborated with leading organizations, heads of state, renowned artists, and fellow optimists. A serial entrepreneur since the age of nine, he became an international figure with the publication of his landmark SMLXL, designed and co authored with Rem Kulhas. He's the author of MC24 and founder of Bruce Mao Studio. He's also the chief design officer, CDO, for Freeman, the pioneers in live brand experience. Welcome, Bruce. Glad to have you on ArtScoping.
1: Hi, Max. Glad to be here.
0: This is my first conversation with someone so fancy who's the subject of a documentary. (laughs) Can you fill us in on Mao? Directed by Benjamin Bergman and Jono Bergman, and produced by Carol Martesko Fenster, which is premiering at South by Southwest.
1: Uh, yes, um, well, I'm, I'm also—it's also the first time for me uh, to do something <laughs> so fancy. Um, uh, Benji uh, and Jono, the filmmakers, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. we met when Benji was working on communication for the UN. Uh, he invited us to be to do a project with him uh, for all the heads of communication for the UN. Yeah. Um, and that's how we met. Uh, and then a couple of years later, I, I didn't really know him, but I didn't know he was a filmmaker. But a couple of years later, he called and said, look, you know, we are really inspired by what you're doing. And we'd like to do a feature documentary on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I was uh, a little bit surprised by that, but I said, sure, if you th- if you think that makes sense. Um, so they have followed us around for the last um, three years to really look at, you know, what we do. And, you know, the reality of our work is that um, it's really long-term. You know, it's it's um, yeah. it's big-scale change and therefore um, long-term projects. Um, so it's been quite exciting, actually, to uh, to watch them, you know, work through this process. You know, I'm the subject, so it's not my film it's not my project it's you know mm-hmm. the subject of it you know they're they, i think they've done a really really good job
0: oh that's exciting so when does that premiere exactly
1: in a few weeks at south by they're going to have the first american screening the first screening okay. well, the first screening in the world really
0: well we'll all look forward to that and it's One of the many, many ways in which you've made yourself present, and I'm curious about another project you produced and presented at South by Southwest, which was called Designing for the Five Senses, and that was a couple of years ago. Can you share what you were hoping to communicate in that event?
1: Well, you know, I've been working uh, with a company called Freeman, which produces live experience uh, for several years now. And one of the things i discovered in that work is that almost all design is designed for the eyeball. And mm-hmm. you know, it's really designed for one of our senses. In our work, we're designing live experience. And live experience is not for the eyeball. Mm-hmm. It's for the whole person, the whole body as an interface. Right. Um, and I realized that if you think back, you know, Duchamp liberated art from what he called the tyranny of the eyeball. Mm-hmm. You know, he called it retinal art. Um, and he wanted to put art back in service of the mind. Uh, that really hasn't happened in design. And so what what we introduced was a new way of thinking about design for all the senses. Um, and to do that, you know, we think of live as a medium that has the full human being as an interface. And to really get a an understanding of that, we start by turning off the dominant sense. So yeah. In the experience, I blindfolded the audience and then took them through an experience of the other senses to really, in a way, discover them. If you think about the kind of amount of the brain that is assigned to the visual, it so dominates everything else that we almost aren't aware of our our other senses. Uh, And so this was really a kind of immersive experience for the audience to bring them into a new way of thinking
0: and mercifully today we're absolved from the visual so all we have <laughs> is our voices and so what what other senses did you touch on in that experience
1: Really, all of them i mean we we did you know taste and smell and touch and you know the piece is designed as a kind of you know experience really and so mm-hmm. you know we take them through that and the reaction was surprisingly dramatic. Uh, a lot of people cried. Mm. Um, you know, One person said, I discovered I have ears. Um, one of the things we did in the piece was, um, without announcing it, because people had no idea what they were going to do, and we kept them backstage until the piece began and they were blindfolded, I had an oboist and a violinist play this very beautiful piece, as a kind of call and response, moving through the audience. So so walking in amongst the audience. And you get a kind of experience of sound that you really have never had, I mean, or or almost never, where you have concert-grade performance with an intimacy that really blows the mind. And so the reaction was very emotional. It was very much stronger than I expected, frankly. Yeah, It was really powerful.
0: So much of what you have done in your work is to share insights in a variety of platforms. And not just, of course, in performance and public speaking. Last year, you published MC24. Can you share a couple of the key design principles that you advocate in the book?
1: Well, the book really develops... uh, kind of platform concept for design, which is what we call life-centered design. And I realized that it's something that I've been working toward for probably over 30 years. It's a, a kind of evolution of our you know way of thinking about design that mm-hmm. puts life and not humans at the center. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, the kind of concept in design is human-centered design. But in some ways, human-centered design is a denial of the Copernican revolution that happened so long ago. Copernicus said we're not the center of the universe, but we still mostly behave as if we are. We really spend most of our time trying to deny Copernicus. By putting life at the center, it fundamentally changes the perspective. And what we've done is, over the last decade or so, Try to understand what are the principles of that way of thinking. We developed 24 of them. And we start with, first, inspire. Design is leadership, lead by design. In other words, our responsibility as designers Mm -hmm. is to lead. We have the capacity to envision the future and systematically execute the vision. That's the best definition of leadership that I could find. -hmm. That we really have that power to create a vision and to realize the vision. Uh, But mostly we don't take responsibility for it. We don't actually understand the power that we have, and we're not conscious in the implications of the work that we do. So that's the first. The second one I thought would be relevant to your audience is compete with beauty. This idea is very simple that. Beauty is one of the most powerful forces on the planet. We will suffer for beauty. We'll pay more for beauty. We'll travel for beauty. Uh, We'll go to the end of the earth for beauty. But we have almost no education about it. If you walked into an architecture school today and you put up your project and you said, I did it because it's beautiful, you would get an F. You would get an F. (laughs) You would fail. We're embarrassed by beauty. We don't want to classify it. We don't want to actually commit to it. You know, when I work with clients, I ask them, you know, what is your beauty strategy? Almost never do they have an answer. Steve Jobs had a beauty strategy and he created a company that is now worth, you know, $2 trillion. And it's really using beauty as a concept, as a competitive idea. And so in the book, I define the 13 dimensions of beauty that you can learn as a language. You don't have to become uh, you know, a PhD in design or a, a master uh, practitioner, but you can use the language of beauty in your life and work. So those are two of the principles yeah. that, uh, that, you know, that are in the book.
0: Well, I think you've whetted the appetite of our listeners <laughs> who will rush out to get this extraordinary meditation. But I want to back up, Bruce, to ask you about your beginnings in life before you relocated to Chicago, if you could give us a primer on Bruce Mao.
1: Um, sure. I grew up uh, on a farm outside of a mining town in northern Canada. Our house was built on a kind of rocky hill in the Precambrian shield. And that meant that we didn't have running water in the wintertime. So my job as a young man was to go to the well in the valley each day and provide water to the household. Uh, you know, before I went off to school, uh, you can imagine that there was a lot, not a lot of talk about design on the mm-hmm. farm. But you know, one thing that I did, and one thing that was you know a big part of that culture, was improvisation, and we just did what we had to do. Right. So if you needed a barn, you built a barn. And you figured out how to do it and you organized people and you kind of got the thing done. That's actually what I do for a living now. (laughs) I'm basically uh, building barns of, you know, of all kinds. Uh, From there, I went to art school. I saw Expo 67 on television and Buckminster Fuller and the, you know, the pavilion he did. And I was so excited it really had a profound effect. I'd never been, uh, I'd never been to a city until I went to college for my interview. It was the first time I left the farm. Uh, it was the first time to a, to a real city, and I just fell in love, you know. And i I went to the Ontario College of Art in Toronto. I didn't really have any real understanding of, you know, what that was going to mean. I didn't know what a designer was. It turns out that I I love putting words and images together. I love ideas and images. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, it turns out, is a designer, a graphic designer. Um, And it it kind of became uh, my life.
0: And we got to know each other when I was director of the Art Gallery of Ontario, and your alma mater was next door. But by then, you were already a seriously established, world-renowned designer. What led you to move to the States from Toronto?
1: Um, well, you know, we did a project called Massive Change mm-hmm. that actually you know, was presented uh, first in Vancouver at the Vancouver Art Gallery, then in Toronto at the Art Gallery in Terra, and then it went to Chicago, it came to Chicago at the Museum of Contemporary Art. When we came to Chicago with the show, we had such an amazing time. It was just, you know, Mayor Daley was the mayor at the time, the kind of embrace of design in the culture, in the community, in the leadership, I had never experienced anything close to it. I mean, Mayor Daly actually went to Toronto to see the show huh. before it came to Chicago. Uh, just to give you a sense. And and when we opened here in Chicago, we did an event and Mayor Daly came to that event and gave all of the presenters... A certificate of appreciation from the city of Chicago. I mean, I was blown away. I was just <laughs> yeah. blown away. Yeah, uh, and we had such a great time. You know, it was a uh, Barack Obama was running for president. Mm-hmm. Um, we got involved with that. I actually did a really wonderful program for the DNC in Denver that year. We did a Green Constitutional Congress to mm-hmm. imagine what a sustainable America would look like. So it was just a wonderful adventure. And at the time, we were thinking of opening a studio in New York. But when we came here, we just had such a great time that we thought, you know, why don't we do it rather than either buying a studio or sending some people? Why don't we take this as an adventure and, and move to Chicago? We could not have imagined what would happen in the next uh, 12 years.
0: About Massive Change, which was such a high-impact experience was there an epiphany that prompted your conjuring of that concept of that way of thinking?
1: Well, you know, I was uh, at the time, there was a very negative mood floating around. Um, mm. And even in the creative disciplines, people somehow, you know, felt like we were losing. We were, you know, it was, it was kind of the, the worst time in, in history. I was quite, you know, I was very much opposed to that, and I was, you know, I was doing research on that, and I found an extraordinary quotation by a man named Arnold Toynbee, who was a British mm-hmm. historian, wrote a 20-volume history of the world. I found this beautiful quote uh, that was actually in, a, in the Nobel lecture of Lester B. Pearson, the former mm-hmm. prime minister of Canada. Pearson quoted Toynbee saying that in the long sweep of history – uh, the twentieth century would be remembered not for violence and conflict, or for technology and innovation. That, in fact, it would be remembered instead as an era in which we dared to imagine the welfare of the entire human race. When I read that, I thought, "Wow, that's what design is about. That's that's what I'm committed to. That's what I think most designers, even all designers, are part of. They probably wouldn't say it in that kind of grand way." Right. But designers are trying to make a better thing, you know, a better product, a better environment, a better communication, a better interface. They're trying to imagine something better. Uh, they're working hard to do that. So I thought, well, this was 1957 that he said that, mm-hmm. and those two people would have lived through the worst killing in human history—70 million people killed—but mm-hmm. still, they're they say the big idea is the welfare of all mankind and that we are actually doing it. Uh, and when he uses the term practical objective, he makes it a design project, not a utopian vision. It's not something that is by definition out of reach. It's actually something that we undertake. And right. so I said, look, it's, it's now you know almost 50 years later. If it's true, there should be a mountain of evidence. And so we did 20 person years of research to really look and see whether or not it was true. And what we found was so, you know, that it was so radically true that it was really shocking that we don't really understand it. We don't believe that that's what we're committed to. And we don't believe that this is the best time in human history to be alive and working by a radical long shot, you know, not by a slight margin. And if we don't believe that and we don't see it and we don't understand it, we can really seriously go off the rails. We can forget to do it. We can, we can lose our way, and so yeah. I was really, uh, you know, that's that's really what drove the, what drove the project.
0: So in effect, you were a Pied Piper for Mayor Daly. You've you've worked <laughs> with other mayors. You've worked with heads of state and with countless cultural leaders around the world. Could you share an anecdote about a client who who surprised you, maybe with their insight or their ideas?
1: I mean, I've had a lot. Uh, you know, one thing I I consider myself possibly the most fortunate designer of the last half century. I've had the you know incredible experience of working with people like Frank Gehry and Rem Koolhaas and just really amazing people who have really opened the doors for me. I. Frank asked me to do things i had never even contemplated doing. I did all the communication and uh, signage work for the Walt Disney Concert Hall. And I said, Frank, you know, I've never designed a bathroom sign, you know. I have, no, <laughs> I have no idea how to do this. And he said, you know, I want you to do it. So I've I've had I've been very fortunate. The, but you know, this question I think the the kind of best answer is a man named Kent Martin Newsom. And mm-hmm. Kent is the director of the Danish Architecture Center in Copenhagen. Kent came to me and said, look, we need your help in shaking Denmark out of our modern history. And he explained that, that he said, you know, uh, there's a new generation of young designers in Denmark, but they are being held back yeah. by an architectural culture that believes if you do anything that isn't Danish modern... It's unpatriotic, and and we need to be free from that, and Mm -hmm. we can't do it ourselves, and we'd like to ask you to help, and I was shocked, actually, because I thought, why on earth is Denmark coming to Canada for for design (laughs) help? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It should be the other way around, but they were right. They were right, and we ended up doing a project. It was one of my favorite things I've ever done. It's called Too Perfect. and it was an exhibition that was produced simultaneously in Copenhagen, Toronto and the Venice Biennale. And it opened you know within a day or two in each place. Uh, and basically the concept was imagine the future of Denmark. So what if Denmark was the world's housing factory? And basically it was to apply design, to the country of Denmark, the whole place, as if you could design it. One of the contributors was a man named Bjarke Engels, who is today one of the most famous architects in the world. He led one of the projects to imagine Denmark with an energy bill of zero. And this was, I think now 15 years ago. And recently I took an executive team to Copenhagen to design our sustainability strategy. And what they discovered, you know, what Kent shared with us was he said, look, you know, when Bruce did this thing, I thought he was crazy, frankly. <laughs> I thought <laughs> I thought none of this stuff is ever going to happen. And he yeah. said, but in fact, almost all of it is happening, uh, which I was really excited by.
0: Well, that is a tribute. And not surprising from all the ways in which I've seen you across the years have an influence in cities in ways that people think about problem solving. Bruce, I have a question for you as now a Chicagoan. We have climbed out of Trumpistan. Our kids... <laughs> well, our kids
1: well, we'll see. <laughs> well, uh, we're, we're taking <laughs> so, off. We're taking off. We're getting there.
0: Yeah, but I'm curious about our kids. Our kids lived through a very dark period of those 5 years with the minimal faith in democracy that came during them which will only flourish as a system if this next generation cares believes in it and pays attention are your kids feeling any less pessimistic this month about our political arena than they were before the election
1: well you know i think that they are all designers in their own way they you know they're all doing different things but they are designers in their own way. Mm -hmm. Um, And design begins with empathy and optimism. Yeah. Um, So I think that that design sensibility has helped them during this crisis, during the last uh, several years, to understand the power that we have to change the world. In the face of mendacity and stupidity and ignorance and, all the things that we suffered, that ultimately we still have a core creative capacity to shape the world for the better for more and more people. And yeah. even, I mean, it's important to note that even during what has been nothing less than a kind of firestorm of stupidity, we have still been doing that work as a society. We exited you know, the WHO, yeah. But the Gates Foundation was working to eradicate you know malaria mm-hmm. and making extraordinary uh, impact and changing things. So I think you know one of the challenges that, that we really saw with massive change is that we have a media culture that is structured around violence and conflict. It's not that they're bad people, you know it's not that they're the enemy of the people. They just <laughs> are designed around, what serves their platform, which is violence and conflict. Yeah. Um, and so you don't see all of the collaboration, cooperation, uh, innovation, that is really the dominant story of our time. I like to say that if you published a newspaper called Reality, it would be a mile thick. And the first quarter inch is the New York Times, and it scares the living daylights out of you. But the rest <laughs> of the mile is massive change. The rest of the mile... It's people collaborating and solving problems and you know thinking about how do we make more and more people participate in the wealth that's being created.
0: And I think we're in a moment now as vaccinations are mercifully spreading and as there's a sense that maybe there will be a future without a pandemic in the next several months. And I'd like to know your thoughts about post-pandemic design, do you have some thoughts about how social engagement in public spaces may be permanently, or at least for a long time, affected by the experience we've been through this last year?
1: I think one of the few gifts of the pandemic is that we discovered we can change things. The things that we thought were absolutely permanent, that we could never imagine, or you know, it would take decades and even centuries to change. have stopped We just stopped doing them. we had to.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: and that actually allows us to realize, oh, we can change things And I think that is going to have a profound effect. Now there is a wonderful uh, insight by Bruce Springsteen who mm-hmm. said that you know his audience is always looking to feel at home and to be surprised. You know, they always want to go back to a place that they love, but they also want to be excited. And he said, he called it the X factor. And he said, if you don't have that X factor, you're dead in the water. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to find the X factor in our experience, in our public life, that, you know, we want certain things. We want to go back to certain things, but we also want to be surprised. We want something new. We want a future that is better than our past.
0: And does that touch on the way you think about future challenges thrown your way? In other words, are you energized in a new way by what you describe as the willingness to acknowledge that we can, in fact, alter long habits and patterns?
1: Since we published MC24 during the pandemic, I mean, it was, yeah uh, you know, it was a super weird experience to just not be able to leave my library mm-hmm. you know the whole time and to do the whole book tour um from here was um you know was really challenging but it has had a tremendous impact people are calling us about truly world-changing massive change projects you know one of the big energy companies is seeking to exit oil and really working on the energy transition and asked us, you know, has asked us to help them. And if you think about that kind of change, I mean, just what's happened in the last six months with general motors announcing they're going all electric. Right. I mean, it just completely upended the whole automotive industry. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we're, we're seeing changes that we thought would take twenty or thirty years, happening in twenty or thirty months. I think that we're going to see. You know, um, uh, Ray Kurzweil said that the twentieth, the twenty-first century, will be like living through sixty thousand years of human progress. <laughs> uh, and I think you know, it's it's more and more starting to feel like that. I mean, yeah. uh, and uh, and we're super excited. You know, we're working on healthcare uh, transformation, energy transformation, I mean, uh, education. I mean, we have, a, we have a, a, you know, really exciting education project uh, happening that is, you know, fundamentally changing the experiential platform for education. And I think uh, it's, you know, I, I can't imagine a better time to be alive and working.
0: Well, Bruce, I'm looking forward to having our listeners find some of what we've talked about today. I really appreciate your making the time today to join Artscoping and tell us a bit more, and I thank you so much for it.
1: My pleasure, Max. Thank you.
0: We've been speaking today with Bruce Mao, co-founder and CEO of Massive Change Network, a holistic design practice based in Chicago. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.